So verse 1, chapter 6 of John. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain. There he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh when Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come with him and saith unto him, Philip, whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, and Philip answered him, Two hundred pennies worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There's a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed it to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were seated down. And likewise, the fish as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and, about and above unto them that had eaten. Then rose, then rose men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did and said, this is of truth, that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore, therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again into the mountain himself alone. Let us pray. Father God, we ask you right now, that you would help us in our meager understanding to understand the truth of this scripture. Lord, I pray that you would birth within us a longing and a hunger for the bread of life that we might be filled. God, I ask that you would open the hearts and the minds, the eyes and the ears of everyone that hears this message, that they would come to see Jesus the Christ God in the flesh as that manna that has come down from heaven that could fill and fulfill every need of every human heart that believes. We, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Help us to see the truth. Help us to obey the truth. Help us to proclaim the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week we begin chapter 6 of John with a sign. I told you before there's six or seven signs throughout the book of John that are pointed out that are signs of who Jesus is. And these signs more often than not are tied to discourses or conversations later on. 
This is one of those moments, this is one of those signs that will be attached to a discourse between Jesus and the crowd. Jesus and the Jews that were following him. Here we will see the feeding of the multitude, a miracle that is recorded in every one of the four Gospels. This miracle of bread and fish, this miracle of five loaves and two fish, this young boy's lunch that feeds over 5,000 people, a miracle that's tied to Jesus being the bread of life in verse 35. In Jesus being the living bread from heaven, verse 51. The striking parallels in this chapter between Moses and Christ are here drawn. The bread of life, the bread from heaven, echoing the manna that God gave to Israel in the wilderness. Let us begin this journey by examining this miracle. Examining ourselves to see and ask our own self why it is we follow Christ. Because this chapter we will notice one thing that these people are following Christ but they're following him with the wrong idea of who he is. Which is exactly how we began this morning with talking about this man who we're praying for online who has an idea of who Jesus is but denies the actual fact of who Jesus is. That being, he's God in the flesh. You see, when you get it wrong on who Jesus is, you're getting it wrong on how you're saved. You're getting it wrong on who it is that's saving you and how they went about saving you. Amen? The reality that Jesus is trying to show these people their need for the bread of life. He's trying to show them that they are lost and undone. And if they would but come to him and eat the manna from heaven. They could have eternal life. You see I came this morning with a heart that was heavy. And burdened from all this week's trials. All this week's uh, 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 between family and children and, and, and ministry and going out of town and coming back and seeing people who are dying, seeing people who are hurting, seeing people who, who just flat out deny Christ who, and, and my kids are going through problems which causes problems in my wife's life and my life and everything that's coming against me and I have to do just like you do and sit back down at the table of the Lord and get back in touch with the bread of life. I cannot sustain myself. You cannot sustain yourself. There is only one source. There is only one person that can meet all of my needs. There is only one person who can fulfill everything that I need in my life. And if I'm looking to my own endeavors and I'm looking to my own strength and I'm looking to the physical things that are around me, I will yet be wanting in spiritual matters. I pray that this morning you come to receive the bread of life. Jesus talking about his word. The word of God is both water and bread. It is both milk and meat. It is the thing that can satiate my, that, that can satisfy my thirst. And it's also the thing that can 
cause me to not hunger anymore. The problem is we live in a spiritual wilderness where people are so malnourished. They're like those little kids who've not eaten in so long. They're not even hungry for the word of God anymore. They don't even know that they need it. Blinded to the fact that they're starving to death. Because they have not truly received from the bread of life. I got notes upon notes. Before I get to my notes, I just got to say it again. Jesus is inextricably seeding these people down to feed them and multiply both bread and fish before their very eyes. To show them that they truly need the bread of life. And all they want is a king that can free them physically. That can go against Rome and, and lead them out of bondage. All the while not understanding that even if they were to defeat Rome. They were still enslaved by an enemy that could not be defeated by mortal hands. Sin separates people from God. And without the bread of life, all will die malnutritioned and in hell. Because they have not tasted to see that the Lord is good. So as I begin, I want to set the stage for you, if it were the implications of this miracle. The reason that this miracle is even being performed is because of the discourse that will take place at the end of this chapter where Jesus looks at the crowd and tells them, you're coming to get food, not because you want me or want eternal life, but because you want to fill your belly. He looks at the Pharisees and tells them, I am that bread from heaven. So often, men and women are so focused on what they have or don't have physically that they do not even think today is the day of salvation. Even for those who believe, do you understand when he taught us how to pray? He said, if you pray, when you pray, excuse me, not if you pray, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. I need God's word today in my heart. I need God's word today in my life. I need God's word actively, actively in my life. The word became flesh, and I need that word to dwell in me richly, like Paul says. So as we begin this, I want you to have that foundation in your mind of what the reason, the purpose of this miracle. 
So chapter 6, verse 1, he says, after these things, number one, that's an undetermined amount of time, okay? Most people are guessing about six months has happened or passed between the last events and right now, okay? That's, that's the guess of most scholars is there's about six months worth of time. Uh, the other thing is the Sea of Tiberias, okay? This is the Sea of Galilee. Why is it called Tiberias? And it's spelled uh, T-I-B-E-R-I-A-S, okay? But it's, this sea is called the Sea of Galilee, but it's also the Sea of Tiberias because Rome was in power at the time. And Herod Antipas, anybody remember him? Herod Antipas, the one to kill all the babies, right? Yeah, Herod Antipas founded the largest city on the Sea of Galilee in honor of his patron, his social and financial supporter, who was the Roman Emperor Tiberius, spelled T-I-B-E-R-I-U-S. So he names the sea after that emperor, okay? Why is this important? Because number one, you don't have a whole lot of Jewish maps to go by, but if you have a Roman map and you go, oh, there's the Sea of Tiberias, you can go, that's the Sea of Galilee. Amen? So if you go look it up, this is very practically important. But number two, he's given a, a, a context of where they're at. Amen? Number two, uh, verse two, excuse me. It says a large crowd or a great multitude was following him. But it seems that these people were following him for all the wrong reasons. Look at what it says in verse 2. I'm going to read from the ESV. It says a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now the, the, the King James says on the diseased, right? So, what miracles has Jesus done to this point on the disease? Do you remember? Well, number one, he healed the nobleman's son in John 4, verse 43 through 54. And number two, he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5, 1 through verse 16. Right? So, here's just a, a quick glance. Number one... The nobleman's son was in Galilee. The pool of Bethesda is in Jerusalem, which is Judea, right? So we got to understand here that these miracles, these people have followed him a great long while. Amen? These aren't just random people that popped up, okay? These aren't just random people that just came from the hill country just to see him. These are people who have been following him because they saw the signs which he did on the sick. Amen? And at this point, he's only really done two miracles to the sick. And it's these two. Okay? Now, it could be alluding to other miracles that may be mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Amen? Could be those miracles as well. Amen? But this is specific. He says the miracles on the disease are what got their attention. Amen? Now, why does this get their attention so we're going to find out in just a couple verses okay number three verse three excuse me jesus went up into a mountain onto a mountain and there he sat down with his disciples number one the mountain is not 
uh, specified, okay? It doesn't say he went up to Mount Moriah or he went up to Mount Golgotha. It doesn't say what mountain, right? It just says a mountain. It could be a mountainous region, such as the Golan Heights, which is where they were around the Golan Heights, right, that time, at that time, amen? But this is also maybe another, the, well, the first comparison that's being made from Christ to Moses in this chapter. What did Mer Moses go up to Mount Sinai, right? He stayed up on Mount Sinai. How long did he stay up there, Mike? 40 days. 40 days on top of Mount Sinai. So this comparison or, or John telling us that he's going up into the mountain, he's drawing a comparison now to Jesus and Moses. And this is a comparison that's going to keep going even in the discourse that follows later on in this chapter. He sat down with his disciples. This is no surprise because this is the customary manner in which rabbis taught. Rabbis didn't do what we do in America and stand up behind a pulpit. If we, if we were to teach like the rabbis did, I would sit down and then you all would sit down. And then I'd teach. And then when I'm done, I'd get up and you'd get up and we're done, right? That's how they taught. So this is not a surprise. But it gives context because most people don't envision this miracle as something that's done while everybody's seated. Jesus is seated. The disciples are seated. All those there with him are already seated. Okay? Now watch this. Verse 4. He just gives you another marker. Okay, he gives you another marker of time. This is the second Passover mentioned by John in his book. Okay, verse 5, he says, Lifting up his eyes and then seeing a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said unto Philip, Where are we going to buy all these? Or, excuse me, verse 4. Verse 4. He says, Now the Passover of the Feast of the Jews was at hand. This is the second Passover that John mentions. The first one was in John 2, verse 13. The third one is going to be in John chapter 11, verse 55. That's where the third one is mentioned. And this consequently is how we mark time in our understanding of Jesus' life. Because John goes from one Passover to the next Passover to the next Passover. Which is how we understand that Jesus' ministry lasted three and a half years. That's the whole reason we know his ministry lasted three and a half years is because here in the book of John, he gives us one Passover, the next Passover, and the following Passover. Amen? Now, verse 5, it says he sees a large crowd coming unto him, and then he asks Philip, where are we going to buy food to feed all these people? First, we have to ask ourselves, Why is he asking Philip this? Doesn't make any sense until you read the next verse, right? What's the Bible say in the next verse? Verse 6. He said this to test him. Or the King James says to prove him. Amen? Said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. I want you to understand that this miracle was not just a miracle in that Jesus wanted to help people 
And it wasn't just a miracle in which Jesus wanted to show that he was the bread of life or the manna from heaven, which it is. But it's also something that Jesus is going to use to teach his disciples where they need to be in their understanding. Amen? He asked this to prove or to test Philip. Why? Read the next verse. Read the next verse. What does Philip say? Philip answered him and said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little bit. We don't have enough money. We don't have it. We, there's no way. We don't have enough money with us to buy enough food for all these people. Now watch this. If you read just the next verse, you'll see one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? What's happening here? They are being shown that they themselves possess nothing to meet this need. They don't have it within themselves to meet this need. Amen? That's what you have to realize when you're bringing people to Christ. Look, this, Philip, Philip is, is so analytical. He's like, oh, we can't do that. We don't have enough money. And then Andrew, who's always been bringing people to Christ, you'll notice, okay? Later on, he brings some Greeks to Christ, right? He first brought Peter to Christ, right? We understand Andrew's like, oh, here's a little boy. Look, he's got some food. But how much is that going to, how far is that going to get us? This testing is to show you. The testing is to make sure you understand time and time and time again that you cannot rely on what you have. You have to rely on Christ. You have to rely on the only source that can supply your need. I mean physically, spiritually, mentally. Come on. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Philip is from the area nearby Bethsaida. He's, he's over by, from by Bethsaida, so he's familiar with the area. Jesus could just be going, hey, Philip, you're from around here. Where are we going to go get food from? Philip, for the life of him, couldn't think of anything and just thought, man, we got 200 pennies here. That's not enough. Amen? This was mentioned so that Philip could possibly come to realize that it is impossible for him and those with him to meet the need, which Philip emphasizes in his response. Andrew is always seeing bring, bringing people to Christ, John 1, 41, John 12, verse 20 and 22. Verse 9, these barley loaves are common food for poor people. If you're poor, you're eating barley loaves. If you're well-to-do, you are eating wheat loaves. So Jesus, with meager barley loaves and two fish. Now, these fish are not like, hey, we just went fishing and got fish. These are probably salted, dried fish. Okay? This is also going to draw a comparison between Jesus and another prophet, Elisha. 
in Second uh, Kings chapter four, verse forty-two and four uh, through forty-four, Elisha feeds one hundred men with twenty barley loaves. Jesus's miracle is obviously greater, right? Because not only is he feeding five thousand people plus women and children, could be upwards of twenty thousand people close to it, and he's feeding them with five loaves. Two fish. Verse 10. I want you to get this. Because this is something I didn't think about. What does Jesus tell the disciples to do when all these people are coming up to meet them? He says, have the men sit down. So they all get up there where Jesus and his disciples are already sitting. And what does Jesus do? He says, everybody sit down. Right? Why? Number one, that was how you gave reverence or submission to a teacher. Amen? Number two, you always sit down to eat a meal. Jesus was preparing them not just for food, not just for the bread of life, but also for teaching, which he was going to give them later. Amen? But when we come to the Lord's table, it is, it is adamant for us to come humbly, willing to sit down and partake. In other words, when we come to partake of the bread of life, it ought, it ought not to be done in a hurry. It ought not to be done irreverently, which is what we see Paul telling the Corinthians that when you come together, it's not the Lord's table you're eating because you don't have reverence for the table. One of you eats and is full and the other one goes hungry. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, right? He says, this isn't the Lord's table. You're not doing this in reverence of him. So when we come to partake of the bread of life, it must be done with all seriousness, with all gravity. With all understanding that this is a solemn moment where God is going to impart some grace into my life. Some mercy into my heart. He's going to come and pour into me of the rivers of the fountains of the water of life. Here a lot of commentaries say that this much grass that's mentioned in verse 10 could be alluding to a messianic age. That is spoken of in John 10, verse 9 through 10. Psalms 23, verse 2. Verse 11, we get to where Jesus is, is blessing the food. I want you to understand what it says here. This is important. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks. How does this giving of thanks happen? Well, it probably sounded like this blessed art thou O lord our god king of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth this is a common blessing on food at the time it's still a common jewish blessing today when jesus said and gave thanks for this food he probably said something very similar to this Notice that it says right here, verse 10, or excuse me, 
And they ate as much as they wanted, or the King James says, they ate that they would, or what they would. That means they ate until they were full. Amen? Do you understand that Jesus isn't just wanting you to taste a little bit of what it is to be a follower of Christ? It's not just, oh, here's a little taste. It's you have to do this and sit down and eat until you're full. Amen. When you come to Christ and have faith in Christ, it's not just a, a, a little thing. It's you are giving everything. You're receiving all of the benefits, all of the graces, all of the mercy of God. It's never given to you in just a little dose here and a little dose there. The moment you say, I believe and God does a work in your heart and you're born again, what happens is all of the benefits and blessings of the covenant are deposited within you, period, in the story. He doesn't hold anything back from you. He lets you eat until you're full. Verse 12, when they were full, notice he says, gather everything. Don't lose anything. To me, personally, this is my own thought. This is how God views all those who would believe. Okay? Don't lose any of them. Notice that there's 12 baskets taken, taken up. That's a very significant number because Jesus has everything within himself to fulfill all the needs to bring all of Israel who will believe to himself. And he'll not, lock, he'll not let one get lost. Matter of fact, he says, this is the will of my father that I lose nothing of which he has gave me. Amen. The bread of life is the precious food. It's not to be squandered. It's not to be taken lightly or thrown. The Bible says, Jesus speaking, he says, cast not your pearls before swine. There comes a point when you preach the gospel and you give people the truth and they either reject it or they don't and you move on. Verse 13, some draw conclusions that the number of baskets alludes to the restoration of the 12 tribes of Israel. Also, collecting leftovers was a Jewish custom of the day. The Jewish custom was that you gathered up all the leftovers. Why? Because either you were going to take them home or you were going to give them to the poor or you are going to distribute to them to somebody else. Lastly, D.A. Carson says that the Lord has enough supply. He has enough supply for the needs of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what D.A. Carson says in his commentary on John on the, verse 14. Verse 14 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, indeed. Oh, excuse me, that wasn't on verse 14. That was on verse 13. Verse 13, he says, so he gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five loaves. But 
that were left but those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, notice that the men saw this as a sign. What's this sign that you think they're seeing? Notice what they say. It says, when they saw the sign that he had done, they said this. This indeed is what? The prophet. What's the King James say right there? It says, this is, indeed, this is the truth. This is of truth. That prophet. Amen. Do you remember when they were asking John the Baptist who he was? They said, art thou the Christ? And he said, I am not. They said, are you Elias or Elijah? He said, I am not. And they said, are you that prophet? He said, I'm not. Who's that prophet? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. When you hear them talking about that prophet, it is in reference to this promise. And I'm going to read from verse 15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, liken unto me, unto him ye shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God at Herob in the day of thine assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that uh, that which they have spoken, I will raise them up a prophet from among, among their brethren, liken unto thee, and I will put my word in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I commanded him. These men were looking at Jesus like he was that prophet. Now, were they wrong? No. But he's greater than that prophet. They've got to understand that this Jesus is not just a prophet. He's not just a man who's going to be king. He's God in the flesh who's come to deliver them from sin. From the bondage of sin. From the power of hell, death, and the grave. Jesus is greater than this prophet. If you would turn with me. Well, uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. It says when they saw these miracles that he did, it's the sign that he did. When they saw this sign. So the reason I named this sermon the sign is because that's what these men saw was a sign that pointed them back to the scriptures. Verse 15, Jesus knew their heart. Look at what he says. Verse 15, perceiving that, uh, excuse me, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
This is another allusion to Moses going back up the mountain. Remember, Moses went up the mountain, got the Ten Commandments, and before he even got down, they had already broken them all. They had already carved a graven image, worshipped it, were committing debauchery at the bottom of Mount Sinai while Moses was getting the tablets, and he came down and he threw them down and broke them. And he had to go back up the mountain. This whole chapter is an allusion to Moses. Jesus starts by going up the mountain, setting down, teaching them, giving them a sign. And he goes back to a mountain by himself. Clearly they saw him as the prophet likened unto Moses. But Jesus is greater than that prophet. He's greater than a prophet. He's greater than Moses. And if you would, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. You want some clarification that Jesus is not just a prophet like Moses, but he is greater than Moses. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Hebrews. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus who was faithful to him that appointed him, also as also Moses was faithful in all the house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as that he who had built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that builds all things is God. And Moses was verily faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast to the confidence, the rejoicing of the hope unto the end. Jesus is worthy of greater honor not just because he was faithful like Moses. Moses was just a servant. Jesus is the son. And this house is not a house like Moses built, but it's a house that God built. And it's Jesus' house. Greater distinction when we understand who Jesus is, is this. Jesus is the word of God made flesh, John 1, 1. In the beginning, he was with God. In the beginning, he was with God, but was God. Thomas looked at him and said, thou, or what did he say? He said, my Lord and my God. We already talked about Matthew said that he was God incarnate, God in the flesh, God with us. The book of Revelation starts, Behold, I am Alpha and I am Omega. And it ends with Jesus saying that he is Alpha and Omega. He is the root of David. He is the beginning and the end. The Bible says that all authority and all judgment have been given unto the Son. Only God judges all things. And Jesus, by being the judge of all things 
is absolutely God. He's worshipped as God in the book of Revelation chapter 4. But let's, let's go there just for a moment. I want to read. Go to Revelation chapter 4. I want you to catch this. If I could get to Revelation. <laughs> I want to read just a few things. I am Alpha and Omega, verse uh, chapter 1, verse 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end saith the Lord, which is and was and which is to come, the Almighty. Verse 11, I am Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and which thou seest right in this book. That's how it starts. Chapter 4. After which I looked and beheld a door which is opened in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard was, as it were, as a trumpet, like talking to me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne of God was in heaven. And one that sat upon the throne, and he that sat upon it was like jasper and a sardis stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in the sight under emerald. And round the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders seated, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold, and the throne, out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps burning before the throne of God, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was seated on the sea of glass like crystal in the midst of the throne. Around the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And they were singing, verse 11, Thou art worthy to receive honor and power and glory. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are created. And if you read verse 5, or chapter 5, you'll notice that the Lamb is there. And they all worship Him who sits upon the throne and the Lamb. For they are worthy to receive honor, glory, power. Skip to verse, or chapter 22. You see these words. Chapter 22, verse 10, or verse 11. Now let's just go to verse 6. And he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. The Lord God, the holy prophet, sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of this prophecy. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I heard them and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel which showed these things to me. And then he said unto me, Thou doest not this, for I am thy fellow servant and thy brethren the prophets, of which, uh, of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. And he said unto me, Seal not the sayings of this prophecy, for the time is at hand. 
And he that is unjust, let him be unjust. He that which is filthy, let him be filthy. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me to give every man according to his work. As his work shall be. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do the commandments that have that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers, whoremongers and murderers and idolaters, and whatsoever loveth and maketh a lie, I, Jesus, have sent my angel. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He's not just a prophet likened unto Moses. He's greater than Moses. He's not just He's not just a man, but he's God in the flesh. Amen. And he offers the bread of life to any who would believe. Stand with me as we pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your grace. Lord, we ask for your mercy this morning to help us as we stand on your word that we might rightly divide your word of truth, that we may understand it, apply it, and preach it, declare it, and live it. God, we pray that we would be living epistles, that all men might see Christ in us and hear the gospel from us. God, we ask that you would bless the food that we are going to partake of this afternoon and help us as we fellowship and worship you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.